mosquitoes and coronavirus, regenerative agriculture, and a look ahead for the beef industry. Welcome to Around Farm Progress, a weekly podcast that looks at issues across the country as reported by our editors. I'm Willie Vogt, your host and editorial director at Farm Progress, and if you hear noise in the background, it appears my home studio is again nestled in an active construction zone. First, let me say there is no risk for mosquitoes passing coronavirus, but we talked with P.J. Griegspor, editor of Kansas Farmer, about that issue and her story with a Kansas state expert who worked to verify that fact. P.J. is also covering a new three-year project where cereal giant General Mills is cooperating with wheat farmers in Kansas to explore a range of regenerative farming issues. Then we turn our attention to the beef industry. Beef Magazine editor Burt Rutherford is just back from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association summer meeting, held in person by the way, and we discuss what he learned at this event. First up, it's PJ, Mosquitoes and Regenerative Agriculture. Well, PJ, as um, I often do when I start these conversations with the podcast, first question for you today is how's the weather in Kansas? It's actually quite nice in Kansas today, and the forecast is for quite nice for a week or so. We're having a shower of rain almost every morning, and... Not enough to soak everything up, but enough to uh, give the uh, corn and soybeans a drink. And the highs are in the mid-80s. Well, that's great for pollination and for grain fill. So that's a good news. One of the areas you've been looking at and uh, working on, and I believe it's with Kansas State, you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that they've been looking at insect vectors for coronavirus. I mean, it's a question that popped up early when this disease came up is, are, how are other ways it might be moved across the population? What did you learn? Well, I talked to Stephen Higgs. He's the director of the Biosecurity Research Institute, the Level 3 Research Lab at Kansas State University. He said he came up with the, with the research from the, from the WHO early on that suggested it was unlikely that this disease could be vectored by mosquitoes. Well, he's a mosquito man. He's been doing research with vector-borne diseases for more than 30 years, and he didn't think that was an assumption that should be made. He said, what if we're wrong? The consequences of assuming that mosquitoes would not spread this virus in the absence of absolute scientific proof that it won't, that they won't, was just a terrible idea. Because if we've made a mistake here, it could be a very costly mistake. So he looked around his secure insectary inside a level three biosecurity lab with scientists who work with these mosquitoes all the time. They have a mosquito grow room. They grow the three varieties of mosquitoes that most commonly carry viruses that are transmitted to humans by mosquitoes like uh, dengue fever and yellow fever and Zika and West Nile virus. He thought, why don't I, I've got everything except samples of coronavirus. Why don't I apply to get the virus and we will just do these scientific studies to prove that mosquitoes won't transmit this disease. So that's what they set about doing. He had a team of four people, I think, helping him. And what I found fascinating, this is one of the most fun stories I've done in a long time. What I found fascinating was the way that the research is carried out. Um, They have all these mosquitoes in grow room, in a grow room, and they're in cages. When they want to use them, they collect some, they put them on ice to immobilize them, they count out how many they want of each variety, and then they take them into the secure insectary that's actually in the research part of the lab. And they don all their protective gear. So you're doing this, imagine doing this research while you're wearing 
a mask and a face shield and another layer of plexiglass and clothed in plastic stuff. Your hands are gloved, of course, with the rings around your wrist so that nothing can get in. And then you're reaching your hand into this plexiglass box where you have these immobilized mosquitoes and you are picking the right spot on the mosquito body to inoculate them with the virus. The thing I found fascinating was, you know, just thinking about the size of a mosquito. And then you've got Dr. Higgs said that his hardest part for him is all the reflection and reflection that you get off of all these glass and plastic surfaces. <laughs> anyway, you inoculate the mosquitoes like 300 of them, and then you study them for a week. And periodically, you knock them out and withdraw fluid from them and test it to see if the virus is replicating. They inoculated them both in the mid-gut region, which is where mosquitoes normally replicate the virus, and in the salivary gland region, which is a place that it, if you have virus, it can be transmitted to a new host. But you normally, it doesn't get there unless the mosquito puts it there. But they just wanted to be extra sure. So that's the extra complicated research they did. They studied these mosquitoes for a week and no, uh, they don't replicate coronavirus and therefore they can't be a vector to transmit it to humans. So that's the good news story. It's a fascinating story. I, I go back to the phrase, this is a fun story. I'm sorry, anything around mosquitoes is not fun from my perspective. <laughs> I get that. But I think the other side of it is that it's great that from his perspective, he didn't just take on faith, the World Health Organization saying, ah, this is not a problem. Uh, and the answer is, no, we're going to check this. And guess what? No, it's not a problem. I think it's very exciting that that's true. So for anybody listening to this podcast, you can't get coronavirus from a mosquito, which is great news. You can get a lot of other things from a mosquito, but not coronavirus, correct? Correct. Let's move on to something that doesn't involve mosquitoes. <laughs> but thank you for that good news. There's a very interesting project going on in Kansas. Um, and this is a regenerative agriculture project being developed and promoted with General Mills. Can you give me a little background on that and then what you're already finding out about this program? General Mills was very interested in doing a regenerative ag project with wheat farmers. And they picked South Central Kansas because that is the region from which they buy a great deal of hard red winter wheat for their flour mills. Uh, they also picked South Central Kansas because there is an already organized 20-year-old group of farmers in the Cheney Lake Watershed. Cheney Lake is a large reservoir that is the drinking water source for the city of Wichita. And Wichita wanted to make sure that that lake stayed clean. The farmers involved, many of whom lost their century-old family farms when that reservoir was built, wanted to see it have a lifespan of at least as long as their life. They looked at what you needed to do to keep that watershed clean and, and give it longevity. So they formed a no-till conservation organization that's just called the Cheney Lake Watershed and began to look at farming practices that would help them achieve that goal. And like I said, that was some 20 years ago. Well, they've established no-till farming practices. They've returned some stuff to grass. They've used land for grazing and livestock as opposed to row crops or, or farming it to try to reduce nutrient runoff into the lake, et cetera. Having that group already organized and ready to go was a big benefit to General Mills to take it a step further, to look at what you need to do to truly rebuild the health of the soil, what kind of farming practices it takes, and what kind of rewards that farmers might be looking for to engage in those practices. 
So they picked, I think it's 40 farmers in in South Central Kansas to be part of this regenerative ag project that will last at least three years. It's funded for three years. They'll be looking at a big number of things that might be good for the health of the soil, including growing a lot more cover crop in the off season, particularly just in general, and adding livestock, grazing livestock to make those cover crops more profitable to the farmers. So one of the things that farmers have complained about is, well, yeah, cover crops are fine. You can spend the money, you can plant the seed, you can grow the cover crop, you can spend the money for the herbicide to kill it. It's all spending money. There's no money coming back to you for that practice. If you plant forage cover crops and run cattle on it, you're making money on your cover crop. You're getting a return on the money that you spent to grow that cover crop. It's not just there growing. It's doing something. This is a conversation that Alan Newport, the editor of Beat Producer, and I constantly have that the cover crop story isn't just about throwing rye into a cornfield. And and it's important to keep green on the ground all winter. That's kind of the idea of cover crops. But the real story on cover crops on the profit side is that's a feed source. There are folks that are starting to bale that cover crop before they plant their corn or soybeans into it and use it for feed. I have a question about cover crop timing before we go on with the livestock. In wheat, is cover crop timing easier than it is in corn and soybeans? The wheat comes off in June or July, so I can get in pretty early with a cover crop, right? Oh, yeah. And a lot of people do. In Kansas, it's very popular to plant uh, soybeans behind wheat as a double crop. And that cuts in somewhat to your cover crop acres. But in other places, soybeans don't grow well in all of Kansas. We have a heat issue. Soybeans grow much better in the northern half of the state than they do in the southern half of the state, simply because we tend to get 100 degrees at bloom. And that tends to be a problem for soybeans that sometimes makes them not a very productive crop. In those areas, people are looking at something to grow instead. And a forage cover crop that you run cattle on can be very productive. It also has the advantage of if you get any volunteer wheat, uh, you graze it off with the cover crop. You don't have the wheat street mosaic problem of a green bridge for the wheat curl mite. So that's a, another popular reason to do this. Although some farmers uh, that grow certified seed, et cetera, have expressed concern about what cover crops might be an equivalent green bridge and are fearful that rye might just might be. Research hasn't been done. There's too much volunteer wheat that is the preferred crop of the, of the wheat curl mite. And until you eliminate that volunteer wheat, you can't really look for another bridge because the one that you've got is too big. So in those areas, that's people are con- if people are concerned about that, then the cover crop turns out to be a good alternative. And they sometimes use a cover crop that has worked well for haying in the past. And there's research to show you which cover crops will make palatable hay. What is Jenner Mills paying for? There are carbon credits are involved in this. They're studying, measuring The way you tell if you're rebuilding the soil is, are you rebuilding the organic matter and is your carbon level going up? So they measure for carbon level. And then there's a mechanism for which eventually farmers will be paid for the carbon they sequester. We've been dreaming about this since the early 90s, another income source for my farming practices, because I'm doing so much on my farm to capture carbon. Uh, whether it's in a 300 bushel corn crop where I leave a lot of root matter on the ground or a a cover crop 
that helps build organic matter. So I'm glad that we're finally putting some numbers to this. There's a growing movement here that is pretty interesting. It'll be interesting to see as you follow this over the next three years, how this unfolds. And the people that are helping General Mills with this whole thing are the uh, understanding ag people, which most people know as the nucleus of the no-till on the plains movement. We have people like Ray Archuleta involved in this. Shane New is part of it. We've got people that really do have some understanding of it. And one of the other things that they're really looking at as being an advantage to regenerative ag, and this goes not just in the Cheney Lake watershed, but throughout the whole Missouri-Mississippi River basins, very healthy soil with a lot of organic matter holds a lot more water than depleted soils do. So if you can rebuild the organic matter, some of the runoff that causes hellacious flooding on those river basins would be stored in the soil instead of going down the river basin. So that kind of helps too. Well, I think there's a lot going on like that. And you also discussed the potential for mineralization of nutrients mm-hmm. because you're storing more. And that's a science that is getting more and more attention again as we look forward to this. PJ Greekspore, Kansas farmer, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. We dig in on the nitty gritty, get into the weeds on things. Of course, this week it was getting into the mosquitoes, but that's a different story. I appreciate your time. Keep up the good work and we'll be in touch with you soon. Okay. Thank you very much, Willie. Thanks to PJ, not only for the reassurance on that mosquito question, but also insight from her work with those farmers cooperating with General Mills. Very interesting. Next, we turn our attention to the beef industry, and we're going to learn what Bert Rutherford, editor of Beef Magazine, learned from the National Cattlemen's Beef Association summer meeting, a rare in-person event held in Aurora, Colorado this week. Let's find out what Bert learned. Bert, I have to be honest, I'm a little jealous you... uh got to do something I haven't been able to do in a while. You got to go to a meeting, uh, which was this year's NCBA, National Cattlemen's Beef Association Summer Meeting. Did you have a good time? Yeah, Willie. It was uh, it was really great to be able to just sit and visit with people. They had an in-person meeting uh, because they had a couple of really, really very controversial things that they needed to discuss. And, and they decided that uh, that was best done uh, in a room with, with people able to uh, – look at one another and hash it out. And so that's why they decided to have the in-person meeting. Now, for those who couldn't attend, they had a uh, a virtual opportunity. So every committee meeting for the committee members who were not there, they were able to listen in, they were able to vote on the resolutions. So it was both uh, in-person and virtual. Nice. So what were the controversial topics that really needed that in-person touch? You know, the main topic that was was most controversial was uh, some resolutions really asking NCBA to investigate a regulatory or legislative fix, if you will, to the market situation that we're in. That's a a very different uh, approach to things. Typically, cattle producers, beef producers have uh, not wanted the government to be very involved in their business. Uh, And so that was kind of a hard right turn in terms of philosophy. The live cattle committee meeting went on for five hours or more. It was uh, was intense. There were uh, amendments and then amendments to amendments. And uh, NCBA, to its credit, hired a professional parliamentarian to keep track of things and keep order. And that was good because that person probably was uh, had more fun than he's had in a long time. So in the end... Uh, you know, the meeting was, uh, the, the people were passionate, but yet very uh, professional or respectful. And uh, and that was uh, 
uh, I think, a very very much a credit to the process. In the end, NCBA, the committee members came up with a, a compromise that gave NCBA, gave beef producers an opportunity to uh, seek some some more market-oriented, more voluntary kinds of things. Uh, at root of the problem is the fact that in the fed cattle market, price discovery, which is now based on uh, the live cattle price, which we report on our website every week, uh, has gotten in some places very, very thin, if even non-existent. Uh, and so there is uh, nobody disagreed with the fact that uh, we have a problem uh, and we must address it. Uh, it was just how do we best go about it? Uh, ultimately, it was a compromise where with some very tight timelines, We'll see what happens. We'll we'll see how things go. Randy Block in his uh, from Cattlefax in in his presentation seemed to be very optimistic for the long term. You know, starting uh, probably after 2021, uh, we'll see tighter supplies. Typically, that leads to higher prices. So uh, we'll see how all this uh, shakes out. But I was very impressed with how the process worked in in reaching that compromise. Folks who want to uh, see the actual resolution can go to beefmagazine.com. We have it there. A couple other things that uh, were not quite as controversial, but very interesting. One was um, an uptick, if you will, in in most likely another push for traceability, birth to harvest, full traceability. A lot of discussion about that. And then a lot of look, not a lot, but some good discussion for the federal lands people in the mm-hmm. West. Undersecretary Jim Hubbard, who is essentially the uh, uh, the USDA person in charge of the Forest Service, was there. Had an opportunity to visit with him. I think for folks uh, in the West who run on federal lands, the uh, culture, if you will, or the approach from the top, at least, in terms of, of, the, of the Forest Service, uh, is very definitely changed. Very pro uh, multiple use. Very uh, pro looking at grazing and wildfire management. Wildfire management, quite frankly, really is probably, in my mind anyway, the the most important thing that the Forest Service has in front of it right now. Well, and I would agree with that. And the other side of it is a lot of people don't understand the value of cattle grazing to eat up that underbrush and help with fire control and cattle like a lot of that stuff. So I think that's the the part of the conversation that keeps getting missed. Forest Service is really struggling with some of these issues. BLM is like limiting what I can do. Excuse me, Bureau of Land Management can limit what I do as a grazier. And if we can get these the minds of both groups to meet, I think we could solve a lot of problems, couldn't we? Yes, yes. And and um, um, in addition to Undersecretary Hubbard, uh, there was a, a lady who's the assistant forester for the mountain region, Colorado, including in the mountain region. And in uh, in my talks with both of those folks, uh, I found a very um, they were very willing to to sit down with all users, but particularly with uh, with cattle sheep producers, and uh, and have a discussion about how we can meet in the middle and meet everybody's needs. And that was very encouraging. But yeah, you're right. Uh, you know, without grazing, because you know the the ecosystem that beef producers function in uh, is an ecosystem that developed with grazing ruminants. Uh, and so, um, if you don't have, if you take away that part of how that ecosystem functions, 
why then yeah you things grow they they dry out you have a fuel load and and uh, it doesn't take very much to set that on fire <laughs> absolutely uh, absolutely yeah. so during the conversation uh, during the meetings right we the beef industry issued a long-term plan or a long-term guidance document what was that about well, this is something that the the beef industry has been doing every five years since uh, since the 1990s. Mm-hmm. So it's not necessarily a new thing, um, but it's a very uh, has been and will continue to be a very important thing uh, in the uh, particularly for the beef industry organizations. Um, in that it it it's a strategic plan, and so it it gives NCBA it gives the Cattlemen's Beef Board. Uh, which is the group uh, that was established when the man, when the dollar head checkoff came into being in the in 1986. It, it provides those groups with an overarching. Here's where we're going, uh, mm-hmm. and then the committees and the boards for those groups then then can take that, parse it out, and use that to an extent as as their goals. Um, this plan, however, was a little more aggressive, um, and uh, Kim Brackett. Um, from Idaho was the the chair of the task force, uh, and she wanted this plan to include some things that individual cattle producers could do as well. And so, um, you know, for instance, um, the beef quality assurance program. You know, there's a there's some things in there about that. And so, if you're not BQA certified, go ahead and do that, because that is a very consumer or will be as time goes on, a very consumer-facing effort to show the world that uh, we beef producers really are doing things right. You know, we care about how we handle our animals. We care about animal health. And here is a set of guidelines that help us do that. Interestingly, for the Beef QA program, the ISO certification, which is people might be familiar with, an international uh, organization that uh, uh, looks at what you're doing and basically says, uh, yeah, it's good. Uh, ISO recently gave the Beef Quality Assurance Program uh, the thumbs up. And so what that means now is that uh, internationally, the beef industry's Beef Quality Assurance Program is, is the worldwide standard for how we handle cattle and how we run our operations. Nice. And, and yeah. like you say, it's consumer-facing. So the idea is that eventually it's consumer-facing. The idea is that the consumer does understand that beef producers are doing everything they can. And from a, and BQA covers a lot of factors in a beef operation. Yeah. I think people understand. People who are in it understand it, but people on the outside don't. So it's a good story to tell. Yeah. Anything else you picked up from the big event? Because it sounds like it was pretty busy. <laughs> well, it, it, it was. My takeaway, I guess, is that the process works. We're not going to agree, we being beef producers mm-hmm. collectively. We're not always going to agree on decisions that are made and directions that are, are taken, but the process was very transparent. And anybody who had an opinion, uh, anybody who had anything to say about any of the issues that uh, NCBA and, and uh and checkoff committees faced had their opportunity to, to say what they wanted to say and, and give their opinion and give their solutions. And, and so that's what, you know, an in-person meeting like this, um, that's what you miss when you do it virtually. You know, beef producers like to stand up and look you in the eye. 
Usually with a hat on. I've yeah, always right. this. Always with a hat. I get it. But yeah. and it's an important group. Look, the one thing I, I love about the beef industry and uh in my work too is that you you do know where you stand when you work with a beef producer. They they understand what they're trying to do, they understand the mission that they've got. They don't there's no bones about it. This is what we need to get done. So that's good. Yes. Yeah. It, um, you know, for an in-person meeting, um, all of the, the, uh, the protocols, you know, the trying to stay apart, all that sort of stuff, they, uh, they stressed and, and, um, most of the time it worked. I actually got busted myself. I was, uh, uh, sitting at a table with, uh, the exec for the Colorado beef council and, and, um, a rancher from uh, Northern Colorado. And we were just, just visiting like you do at those meetings and mm-hmm. we had all taken our masks off so we could understand what each other was saying and one of the security people from the hotel came by and reminded us that we needed to put our masks back on yeah. so uh, the hotel was very careful ncba was very careful to uh, remind everyone to stay within those protocols so those of us who who uh, occasionally fell off the wagon if you will uh, uh, they were also very willing to remind you that you needed to get back on. <laughs> right. Well, and of course, the association did make it possible. There are people who are fear attending meetings because of their pre-existing health conditions or those types of things. And I mean, the virtual component is a big deal, although there's a lot of value to sitting around a table and sh- chewing the fat, as it were. But you brought up a good point. The older I get, the harder it is to hear somebody through a mask. Yeah. So that'll be yeah. part of this going forward problem right. as we in the next few months until we work all through this. Well, Bert Rutherford, editor of Beef Magazine, it's been great to catch up with you about the NCBA a summer meeting. More coverage of this will be on beefmagazine.com uh, and also probably in the magazine in future issues. We appreciate your help and uh, keep up the good work. All right, Willie, thanks. Thanks to Bert Rutherford, Beef Magazine, and PJ Greekspore with Kansas Farmer for their insights this week. Around Farm Progress is our newest podcast looking at agriculture with the help of our national editorial team. But we have other podcasts you'll want to check out. The best way to find them is to visit farmprogress.com forward slash farm hyphen progress hyphen podcasts. They're worth checking out. And we continue our in-depth coverage of all things regarding COVID-19 at farmprogress.com forward slash coronavirus. You've been listening to Around Farm Progress, our weekly look at agriculture across the United States with editors from the Farm Progress team. Farm Progress is the nation's leading agriculture information source with 17 state and regional magazines, as well as Farm Futures, Beef, National Hog Farmer, and Feedstuffs. And of course, the Farm Progress Show on Husker Harvest Days, which this year will be taken over by the Farm Progress Virtual Experience. Join us next week as we continue our agriculture journey around the country. I'm Willie Vogt, Editorial Director at Farm Progress. Thanks for listening.